All right, we are back. We need to talk about uh, national affairs issues, particularly in regards to the fact that during the same week we had an anniversary, the sixth anniversary of September 11th. And uh, while Osama bin Laden was going about his business up in the hills of uh, Afghanistan, we were focused on what General Petraeus had to say about Iraq. We should start by citing This Modern World, the Tom Tomorrow uh, a cartoon of a few weeks back in the News and Review where uh, Petraeus came forward and said, of course the surge didn't work. This entire war has been a disaster from the start. Anyone ever thought this would be easy ought to have their head examined. That, of course, was a cartoon. In real life, the coverage, like uh, in the Washington Post, was Petraeus disappointed by Iraq political progress. This really was quite a remarkable bit of sleight of hand, focusing uh, all eyes on General Petraeus, who's basically a salesman for the Bush administration, while we're not noticing the fact that Osama's still at large. Think about it. Who's paid for 9-11? Saddam Hussein. We hanged him. What did Saddam have to do with uh, 9-11? Nothing. Exactly nothing. So after you go on the web and look up what Keith Olbermann had to say about uh, Saddam, you might want to look at what Jon Stewart had to say about uh, General Petraeus's dog and pony show. We want to thank Robin for sending in the notice that you can locate this on crooksandliars.com. I did note a couple days back that on the front page of the Sacramento Bee, everyone was focused on what Petraeus had to say about what was going on in Iraq. On page A9, you got a chance to see what the Iraqis had to say about what was going on in Iraq. And as promised at the top of the show, let's talk about this as our statistics of the day. And I want to thank Jerry for sending this to us. Uh, Jerry noted in his blog, What did the Iraqis in the ground in the line of fire in Iraq think? According to a new poll commissioned for ABC News, the BBC, and Japan's NHK, the Iraqi people would seem to be rather at odds with the general's rosy picture of the Iraq surge. Okay, this surge started in February. And let's compare what, uh, what the Iraqis had to say about how things stand now. This is in August, versus how they saw things two years ago, 2005. Six months into the surge, 50% of Iraqis say life is going quite or very bad for them. 2005 was 29%. 67% of Iraqis say they feel that the medical care in their neighborhood is quite or very bad. In 2005, 36%. 61% of Iraqis feel the local government in their neighborhood is quite or very bad. In 2005, it was 42%. 65% of Iraqis feel their family's protection from crime in their neighborhoods is quite or very bad. In 2005, it was 33%. The same figure, 65% of Iraqis feel their family's economic situation is quite or very bad. In 2005, it was also 33%. How about this one? Two years ago in 2005, 40% of the Iraqi populace said they believed that U.S.-led coalition forces' invasion of Iraq in 2003 was somewhat or absolutely wrong. Today's figure stands at 63%. That does not paint a rosy picture for the surge, but let's expand on this last statistic. Uh, in 2005, 59% of Iraqis said they felt the U.S. and coalition forces had done a quite or very bad job carrying out their responsibilities. Today, that percentage stands at 80%. When they were asked about the surge, 70% of Iraqis said they believed that the increase in the number of U.S. forces in Baghdad and the surrounding areas in the past six months, the surge, has made security in those areas worse. 18% thought it had gotten better. 
But here's the two figures I think maybe are the most telling in regards to why we're not winning the hearts and minds in Iraq. In 2005, 65% of Iraqis said they somewhat or strongly opposed the presence of coalition forces in Iraq. Last month, the figure went up to 79%. Two years ago, 75% of the population said they had not much or no confidence in occupation forces. Last month, that increased to 85%. The war, uh, the war is not very popular. It's clear it's going nowhere. It's clear it's, it's a morass. It's clear it's another Vietnam. It's even clear to George Bush that it's another Vietnam. The problem is the president doesn't seem to be up in the cultural literacy department when you talk about what a Vietnam is. Last month when George Bush compared the situation in Iraq to the situation in Vietnam, the New York Times noted that the American withdrawal from Vietnam is widely remembered as an ignominious end to a misguided war. Now, in urging Americans to stay the course in Iraq, President Bush challenged that historic memory. Bush argued that Vietnam's lessons provide reasons for persevering in Iraq. Bush, in essence, accused his war critics of amnesia over the exodus of Vietnamese boat people and for the mass killings in Cambodia. Of course, if you were alive then and paying attention, as this correspondent was, you would remember that the Cambodian War was an extension of the Vietnam War. Cambodia had been at peace until the U.S. invaded and began bombing. The Times quoted David C. Hendrickson, a specialist in the history of American foreign policy at Colorado College in Colorado Springs, which I believe is just down the road from the Air Force Academy, quote, the Khmer Rouge would have never come to power in the absence of the war in Vietnam. This dark force arose out of the circumstances of the war, was in a deep sense created by the war. Well, in a sense, yes, but remember who started the war? We did. Vietnam would have been reunited with Ho Chi Minh as the president had the U.S. allowed elections to go forward. We instead brought armed conflict to the nation. We do, however, agree with David Hendrickson's uh, second part of his statement. The same thing has happened in the Middle East today. Foreign occupation of Iraq has created far more terrorists than it has deterred. The Times went on to note that in his speech, Bush did not offer a judgment of what, if anything, might have brought victory in Vietnam or whether the war itself was a mistake. Instead, he sought to underscore the dangers of a hasty withdrawal. Well, hasty or otherwise, when we did withdraw, the country quickly fell to the army of the North Vietnamese. And by the way, where are the Democrats on all this? We would note the Danziger cartoon in the B showing uh, the good news and bad news of, of the Democratic donkey and Republican elephant uh, working together. Donkey saying, the good news is we've decided to work together and compromise. The elephant saying, the bad news is, well, I guess you already knew the bad news because both are working together to carry a flag-draped coffin. A rather more accurate appraisal of the Vietnam-Iraq comparison came from the Baltimore Sun in an editorial a few weeks back that had noted that maybe because Bush sat out Vietnam, his grasp of that era's history was a bit fuzzy. The disaster of Vietnam didn't occur the day the last helicopter took off from the embassy roof in Saigon. It began years earlier when successive U.S. presidents decided to commit troops to a foreign civil war we didn't even begin to understand. Staying only made it worse. And writing in the New York Times, David Kilpatrick noted rather astutely, as we just did, 
that they say that by intruding on Vietnam's civil war in the first place, then bombing and invading Cambodia, we destabilized Prince Sihanouk's regime and created the conditions that allowed the Khmer Rouge to unleash its genocidal reign of history. The philosopher George Santayana once said those who don't recall history are condemned to repeat it. This certainly appears to be the case with George W. Bush. So what's really going on over in Iraq? There are cynics out there who would argue that it's all about war spending. It's all about war profiteering. It's about gaining the oil fields. It has nothing to do with bringing democracy to the area. And it certainly has nothing to do with September 11th. And talking about the Democrats and Republicans collaborating, Paul Krugman, writing in the New York Times, said last week, he first noted that any plan in Iraq that depends on the White House recognizing reality is an idle fantasy. He quoted the Sydney Morning Herald, who the week before noted that uh, Bush told the Australian Deputy Prime Minister that, quote, we're kicking ass, unquote, in Iraq. Krugman notes the lesson of the past six years is that Republicans will accuse Democrats of being unpatriotic no matter what the Democrats do. Democrats gave Bush everything he wanted in 2002. Their reward was an ad attacking Max Cleland, who lost both legs and an arm in Vietnam, an ad that featured images of Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein. Krugman notes the public hates this war and wants to see it ended, but, and voters are exasperated with the Democrats, but they don't see Congress doing anything to stop the war. And when's the last time you heard a peep out of Doris Matsui about how we need to stop this fiasco? Robert Scheer had a good column in the LA Times we need to quote from. Said Scheer on September 5th, Okay, throw another $50 billion down the rat hole that is the Iraq occupation. It's only money, if you ignore the lives being destroyed. That's what the White House is asking for, in addition to the $147 billion in supplementary funds already requested. Said Sheer, Congress will grant the funding after P General Petraeus and Ambassador Ryan Crocker follow President Bush's photo op in Anbar province with a dog and pony show of their own. Meanwhile, the Democrats are totally cynical about this continuing waste of taxpayers' dollars and of American and Iraqi lives. Wanting Bush to hang himself with his own rope, they will deny him nothing. Noted Sheer, this year's overall defense budget's been pushed to $657 billion. We're now spending $3 billion a week in Iraq alone, occupying a country that had nothing to do with the tragedy that sparked this orgy of militarism. He notes later in the piece that anti-U.S. religious groups have completely infiltrated the American-trained Iraqi military and police forces. And considering how many arms appear to be missing over in Iraq, it appears that uh, our soldiers are being killed with American-bought weapons and munitions. So why is this fiasco going on and on? Well, we suggest the answer may be found in Matt Tybee's article in Rolling Stone this week, titled The Great Iraq Swindle. Subtitled, From Phony Bids to Invoicing Orgies, How Bush Allowed an Army of For-Profit Contractors to Invade the U.S. Treasury. This article, too, deserves some citations. The article starts off by talking about Ernest O. Robbins, He's a successful contractor over in Iraq. He used to be a well-connected bureaucrat, in his case, an Air Force civil engineer. Robbins used to have an annual budget of $8 billion. He was responsible for overseeing 70,000 servicemen and contractors. After 34 years, he quit and got involved with the war in Iraq. He became an executive for Parsons, a private construction company. March 2004, company gets 
a contract from the Coalition Provisional Authority in Iraq to design and build the Baghdad Police College, a facility that's supposed to house and train at least 4,000 police recruits. Two years and $72 million later, you deliver not a functioning police academy, but a practically useless pile of rubble, so badly constructed that its walls and ceilings are literally caked in urine and feces, a result of subpar plumbing in the upper floors. When the Special Inspector General for Iraq Reconstruction Auditors visit the college, their report sounds like something out of a horror movie. Quote, We witnessed a light fixture so full of diluted urine and feces that it would not operate. And, quote, During our visit, a substance dripped from the ceiling onto an assessment team member's shirt, unquote. Noted the article, the final report helpfully includes a photo of a sloppy brown splotch on the outstretched arm of the unlucky auditor. When Congress gets wind of this dung pile, they decide to hold a hearing. Enter Ernest O. Robbins. When asked by a Maryland congressman how he managed to spend $72 million on such a dung pile, Robbins blinks, says, I have some conjecture, but that's all it would be. Noted the article, the room twittered in amazement. It's hard not to applaud the balls of a man who walks into Congress, short $72 million in taxpayer money, and offers to guess where it might have all gone. Now, apparently asking about a company's compensation is very touchy over in Iraq. Uh, They've got a cost-plus contract. A cost-plus contract means you're guaranteed a baseline profit of 3% of your total costs on the deal. Thus... The more you spend, the more you make. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, one of the problems appears to be that private companies in Iraq are guaranteed huge profits no matter how badly they screw things up. Wrote Matt Taibbi, What the Bush administration has created in Iraq is a sort of paradise of perverted capitalism where revenues are forcibly extracted from the customer by the state and obscene profits are handed out not by the market, but by an unaccountable government bureaucracy. It's the triumphant culmination of two centuries of flawed white people thinking, a preposterous mix of authoritarian socialism and laissez-faire profiteering, with all the worst aspects of both ideologies rolled up into one pointless, supremely idiotic military adventure. And I think that's about as good a description of Iraq as I've heard yet. How about this deal with a company called Custer Battles? They were charged with responsibility to perform airport security for civilian flights in Iraq. But there never were any civilian flights into Baghdad's airport during the life of their contract. So the Coalition Provisional Authority gave them a job of managing an airport checkpoint, which they failed miserably. They were also given scads of money to buy expensive x-ray equipment and set up an advanced canine bomb sniffing system, but they never bought any equipment. As for the dog, they apparently did buy a dog. And the dog did appear to be a certified trained dog. But when it was brought to the checkpoint, it would lie down and refuse to sniff the vehicles, which the article noted was an outstanding metaphor for U.S. contractor performance in Iraq, as has yet been produced. Like most contractors, Custer Battles was on a cost-plus arrangement, which means its profits were guaranteed to rise with its spending. But apparently some people in the company got disgruntled with the fact that, uh, well... Well, the fact they made out phony invoices to shell companies they controlled, 
One point, they found a bunch of abandoned Iraqi Airways forklifts on airport property. They repainted them to disguise the company markings and billed them to U.S. taxpayers as new equipment. These guys were sent so much money, in cash, by the way, in shrink-wrapped plastic, that they were playing with it like toys. A former CPA official told in his Senate testimony, we played football with the plastic-wrapped bricks for a little while. Now, the company did get into some trouble. They got into some trouble when a couple of their leaders apparently left a spreadsheet behind after a meeting with CPA officials, a spreadsheet that scrupulously detailed their phony invoicing. Noted an investigator, it was the worst case of fraud I've ever seen, hands down, but it's also got to be the first instance in history of a, of a defendant leaving behind a spreadsheet full of evidence of the crime. But the article notes, here's where things really get interesting. The Bush administration not only refused to prosecute the company, they actually tried to stop a lawsuit filed against the contractors by whistleblowers hoping to recover the stolen money. The administration argued that Custer Battles could not be found guilty of defrauding the U.S. government because the CPA was not part of the U.S. government. Then when the lawsuit went forward despite the administration's objections, the company mounted a defense that recalled Nuremberg, arguing they could not be guilty of theft since it was done with the government's approval. Apparently, a jury disagreed. They were found guilty of ripping off the taxpayers. But the verdict was set aside by T.S. Ellis III, a federal judge who cited the administration's The CPA Is Not Us argument. So the article asks, Is it really possible to bilk American taxpayers for repainted forklifts stolen from Iraqi airways and claim that you were just following orders? Well, apparently it is when your commander-in-chief is George W. Bush. The article mentions that federal audit finding that 190,000 weapons are missing in Iraq, nearly one out of every three arms supplied by the United States. They noted these weapons almost certainly ended up on the black market where they were repurchased by insurgents. And how about the actions of Kellogg, Brown & Root, Dick Cheney's company? The company dumped 50,000 pounds of nails in the desert because they were too short. And they left the army no choice but to set fire to a supply truck that had a flat tire. They did not have the proper wrench to change the tire, said an Iraqi vet named Richard Murphy. So the decision was made to torch the truck. What the magazine described as perhaps the ultimate example of military capitalism, Kellogg, Brown & Root reportedly ran convoys of empty trucks back and forth across the insurgent-laden desert, pointlessly risking the lives of soldiers and drivers so the company could charge the taxpayers for its phantom deliveries. We could probably do an entire hour on this article alone. You've got to read it. Rolling Stone, September 6, 2007. Is the Iraq war about war profiteering? Well, you make the call. We would note that more and more people are tending to see it that way, including that that magazine of extreme left-wing journalism, Reader's Digest. They noted a few months ago that at a time of war, when our troops don't always have the best and safest equipment, the Pentagon is buying $20 plastic ice cube trays. Yes, what costs you 99 cents at the dollar store costs the Pentagon $20 from a defense contracting vendor. But they're making a pile of dough. Just turn on your cable TV network and see what's on the History Channel or the Military Channel. Check out the Military Channel. 
In fact, let's close with something that was mentioned in the Reader's Digest article, which I saw on the History or Military Channel, I forget which, just a few days ago. Apparently during the Civil War, uh, the South launched a submarine attack on a northern vessel that was not successful. All the crewmen were killed, and the crewed submarine sank. Enter the U.S. taxpayer. The Hunley was raised from its sandy grave off the South Carolina coast a few years back at a cost of $6 million. Four years later, South Carolina State Senator Glenn McConnell, a Civil War buff, delivered a eulogy dressed as a Confederate general. Investigation by the state, South Carolina's largest newspaper, alleged that McConnell had funneled more than $8 million of taxpayers' money to Friends of the Hunley, a foundation he established. It just seems that when it comes to military matters and taxpayer dollars, the sky's the limit. To preserve this Confederate sub, the initial cost of this project was estimated at $5 to $10 million. At this point, no one seems to know just how much is going to be spent. Current estimates put the figure at around $80 million. Of course, watching cable television, this just looks like a terrific idea, racing the submarine. Of course, I really should step back and you know, put it in its proper perspective. The $80 million they're going to spend on the submarine, we're spending that on the Iraq war about every five or six hours. And I think at this point, we desperately need a break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Radio Parallax.